Welcome to After Deadline, the media podcast. We're your host, Kathy Fowler. And I'm Mark Silverstein. We are veteran TV news reporters who turn to the dark side and now work as PR and marketing gurus. That may be you. What are you? Uh, genius. Oh. I, think, I think the category is genius. I think our guest is a genius. That is true. This week, we're talking with the Southern Bureau Chief at Axios Local, Michael Graff. Michael's been a writer covering sports and politics for nearly 20 years. His work has appeared in ESPN, Politico, The Guardian, Washingtonian Magazine, along with many others. He's even written a book called The Vote Collectors, which he decided to publish after working on stories about an election fraud scandal. Oh, very relevant. He has exclusive insights about the industry to share. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. We're glad you joined us. We are honored to have you. And let's let's go back a little bit. What made you get into journalism? Well, I was a young boy growing up in the grand state of Maryland, and I was a huge Baltimore Orioles fan. Ten in a row. Ten in a row. That's correct. <laughs> and I realized at a young age, we didn't have a ton of money. So we would go to one Orioles game a year. And then I started reading newspapers and I realized there were these people who got to go to games for free and they were called sports writers. So <laughs> I set out in the, I don't know what grade it was, sixth, seventh or eighth in middle school to just I knew this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sports writer who got to sit and watch the Orioles or, or whoever. And so I started my career as a sports writer, working at papers in Winchester, Virginia, and then Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and then Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I quickly realized that as much as I love sports, sports writers work when everybody else is off. So I was you know, games take place at times when most other people can go to them. And so I was, I was covering some of the best sporting events that you can imagine. I was covering things like Duke and Carolina basketball and things like that, but I was doing it on Saturday nights at nine o'clock. And I just thought, you know, I was late twenties, early thirties at the time. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to try to do, you know, I need to find some kind of way out of sports writing now, as much as I love it. So I became a, then I became a a features writer at the newspaper and really sort of embraced it. And I got to, and I realized as a, as a features writer, you could write about sports too, just in a different way without having to be there, be present all the time at the game. So that was, that was my long and short, short career path. You majored in English, not in journalism. Is that because you don't think journalists know how to write? So you wanted to like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted, I, <laughs> is there is it a satisfying answer just to say that high point gave me a scholarship and that's what i i just decided to go to high point because i got a scholarship so I, I university went. we're big fans of high point university <laughs> so i left you know i i was in i got accepted in the two journalism programs one at the university of maryland and one at the one at indiana university and but i did one visit to north carolina and thought this is where i want to go and i'll make it work from here I do think that the English background, the writing background really served me very well early in my career. I got to, I had a one professor at High Point. It was just a, a creative writing course who came in one day and he had this huge head of crazy white hair and he just said, be weird. And I thought like, that's great. So, you know, in my writing, I've always tried to be weird 
And I don't think, I'm not sure that a lot of journalists start that way. I think a lot of journalism schools teach rules and, and things like that. And, and I learned all the rules kind of along the way while doing the trade, like how to source stories and all that stuff. But I had the writing background and I had that be weird mentality. And I think it really served me well because I wasn't looking for the same stories that everybody else was looking for. I've always been a fan of, you know, like in sports writing, the, the basic example is when there's a gaggle of reporters around somebody, I never wanted to be in that gaggle. I wanted to go talk to the loneliest person in the room, like the, the loneliest athlete in the, in the locker room to try to find out what was really happening. And so that was just, and that was the background, I think, that High Point and the English department there gave me was just the freedom to, to try to see the world in a way that other people weren't seeing it. And that really served me up really well in journalism. I wouldn't, you know, I've, I've worked obviously with a ton of people who've come through J school through the years and I admire the background that they got, but I will never say that I made the wrong choice by being an English major first. Well, wait, let me get, so what does be weird mean? Or does it mean different things to different people? And, and or was there like be weird and then, and then somewhere along the line, the light, went, light bulb went off over your head and you go, oh, now I get it. Yeah. What he meant, I think, was that he was reading really boring stories and he was tired of reading boring stories, what the professor meant. And to me, that just meant go try things with the language, try to write, you know, try be write long paragraphs that are followed by one word paragraphs, things like that. Those that was the early stages of it. But be weird to me just means follow curiosities and not try to follow rules and follow other people. And, and that's what I was always looking for in things that I was writing. I was trying to write, even in college, I was trying to write stories that, you know, nonfiction stories, nonfiction essays, things like that, that, that were not the same as my classmates and trying to do things that would surprise a professor, surprise myself along the way, because, you know, writing can feel like a job and I never wanted it to be that way. I've always wanted it to stay fun. So just just trying to entertain myself, I guess, <laughs> is part of the be weird is, thing. Is your writing still evolving? Is it always changing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the media business sort of demands it these days. I work for Axios now, which is, a, a, they have a format of writing called Smart Brevity. And when we I started working there, you know, colleagues and peers were saying, you know, how can you write in this like boxy format where they have certain, Axios has a why it matters high up in every story, things like that. And I thought, well, you know, it's like any good artist, like they can try to paint different things within, like having, having, I, I guess having boundaries is, is in some ways freeing because it allows you to, to try to be creative with it in those boundaries and I've had a lot of fun with it like there are times when I'll write little things in the newsletter that <laughs> I say you know we I'll get to the why it matters and I'll say it doesn't really you know or something <laughs> like that <laughs> but but can I think you say fun. that yeah, can you say yeah. well it doesn't really matter to most people <laughs> yeah. you can but and then then you just follow it up with but here's why I find it interesting or something like that you know just try to be a little bit 
strange with it. That's so funny that you brought up the book of Smart Brevity because I was watching one of the cable news shows this morning and I guess there must have been somebody on from Axios because I literally heard that book and I was like, oh, I got to go buy that book. Yeah. They're just, you know, they were pubbing the book as well as, you know, just talking about whatever brief topic, I guess. But uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit. I mean, Smart Brevity, when you think about it, it, it see, it's, a, it's a writing style. Do you think, is it because there's so much that people are, that's thrown at people? Like, are you trying to like help them like sort through it and get them the better stuff faster? Or like, what, what's the idea behind it? And how is it working? Like, what, what do you, what's the response to that type of writing style? Yeah. So right now we have a world. Information is everywhere. Stories are everywhere. And we're trying to help people cut through it. And we, at the top of every newsletter, we tell people this is only going to take you four minutes to read, even though we spent 12 hours working on it yesterday or the day before. The whole goal is, especially with Axios Local, our local markets, we're trying to help you understand your city better, trying to give you a little bit of something interesting like you know whether it's politics or whether it's the latest restaurant opening we're trying to trying to help people understand their city better and help them use the city better and we recognize that all all of us are busy everybody's busy and readers are really busy and so we give them the option you know for a long time journalists tried to avoid tried to fight the idea that people were going to read on their phones Well, people are reading on their phones now, like that's just the way it is. So let's make it easier on them to read on their phones. And we, so we try, we try little things like the bullet points, there's science behind that actually. In the the smart brevity book, they explain that, but there's science behind it. Readers eyes get tired. So you try to break up text with bullet points so that they, they can move through the story and not, and not quit. I mean, the easiest thing for a reader to do, and this is the, this is a truth that that has stayed true from my high point days through my newspaper days, through my long form magazine writing days when I was writing 7,000 word stories. And same now when I'm writing 900 word newsletters, the easiest thing for a reader to do is quit. And it's much easier now. And it will only get easier as more things, you know, are there to take their attention. And so we value that and we try to, Every morning we wake up and we try to we try to deliver a newsletter that tells people one or two interesting things that they can share with their friends. And that's, you know, it's 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 not complicated <laughs> if it's we just we just want them to have something to to say. I got smarter today by reading this. This is the really this is really the art of writing. And, and I love this topic. And, and so I. So when I first got started as a reporter, I used to be able to do features and, and, you know, do a great job on features in my small market. And I, but I was always at the end of the show. It was, and finally tonight, Mark Silverstein has blah, blah, blah. And finally tonight, it became my name. And finally tonight, Mark Silverstein. And then I, and I'm like, why am I doing the, the hard news stories any different than, why am I writing them different? Then I'm writing the features and that made a big difference for me. I I started writing them the same. Do you, you go back and forth from politics to sports. Do you write them the same way, the same sort of construct, I guess would be the word 
or the same uh, sort of mentality of, of how you're going to write these or, or are they different? Is politics different from sports? In some ways, yes. And, but the, the base, basic principle, I'm trying to imagine a reader and trying to, you know, I have a two-year-old son and I try to imagine somebody like me sitting there with my phone in my hand and trying to navigate, you know, whatever needs he has while, you know, my wife says, I'm going to go work out. And like all this stuff is happening on the background and I'm trying to get people to read, to stay with my story. You know, it's like, that's the, I just imagine that the entire, the entire time, whether it's politics or sports or food or anything like that is readers have, readers have a lot of distractions and I'm trying to give them a reason to care about the thing that I'm doing. And so that, that never changes, but you know, yeah, I mean, you can have a little bit more fun with sports than you can have with, with politics sometimes. And increasingly one of the bigger challenges, and you guys know this as, as journalists is just trust in media is, is dipping. So increasingly one of the things that we're having to do more of is show how we've reported a story or really like prove to the reader that this is, this is a well-sourced story and we have multiple people from both sides of the political aisle or something like that to, to show in the story. So it's, it, that is one challenge that has popped up in the past six years or so that, that we're trying to, I mean, we're just, everybody's trying to navigate it is that not only are people blocking out media a little bit more, and have reasons to like watch Netflix and stuff like that, but they are, they don't trust the news as much as they used to. And we're trying to rebuild that trust in some way. And so I, I think that smart brevity, like what we do at Axios is trying to create a community around the stories we write. And I hope it's working. We, a lot of the feedback shows that it is, but you know, we can't please everybody on every day. You guys, so you guys, you guys have definitely had the, the call line to the newsrooms and stuff like that, that you heard. Oh. We, it, it's our email every day. And so we get ma- mean emails every day, but we also get really, really nice ones for people saying, thank you for breaking this down in a very easy way for us. So, so how do you do that? Because sometimes people also think that in order for the medias to be unbiased, they have to just give 50% and 50%. And I'm like, that's not really true because right. if 50% is lying, you're not going to get 50% to the side that, because that's that's kind of the trap that a lot of journalists fall in. They're like, if you just give, you know, two speaking heads, but if this speaking head is not is not being truthful and this one is, ha, ha, but, but how do you do that? And how do you show people behind the scenes to get them to trust you? That's a really good question. I mean, there are times when we will fact check, you know, we'll include if we are writing a story and we have a quote from a politician that has an inaccuracy in it, we will put it in parentheses. It says, you know, this isn't scientifically true or this isn't, uh, you know, there's, and you know, obviously the most obvious case in recent years has been voter fraud and election fraud we can we have to put in parentheses you know multiple investigations have happened on this in georgia or whatever and we have to say and they proved you know that 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 the the extent of the fraud didn't didn't change the course of the election and you just have to you just have to keep trying to do it in a way that's not condescending to readers because i don't know why some people believe things but you know clearly they are 
clearly some folks are reading unreliable sources and they that those unreliable sources turn into beliefs for them and it's our job to try to deliver it in a delicate way like hey this is not accurate what this person is saying i feel like so since you guys are sort of on the on the new frontier of like digital like news can you use those do you use the analytics and stuff to like let's say you've got this format and you're like oh well people are actually can you check and see or do you people are sticking with this story and they're reading all the way down and then are you constantly revising your storytelling tactics by using those analytics to to help the readers even more or, or you know tell the story in a different way that's more you know that makes make sure you're engaging them and not losing them so with our newsletters you know our email newsletter we we have you know, so typical process now we call scrubbing. I think Axios scrubs its readership more than any other news outlet that I know. And the whole idea behind that is if you haven't opened our newsletter within 30 days, you know, we're just going to take you off the list because obviously you're not interested. So the one analytic that really matters to us is our open rate, like how many people open the newsletter on a daily basis. And right now across Axios Local, we're at about 45 to 50%, which is kind of unheard of in the, the media industry. Like I used to work at magazines where we would hope that like 6% of our newsletter subscribers would open. So right now, for instance, in Charlotte, Axios Charlotte has 110,000 subscribers and 50 to 52% open it every single day. So every day we can go into making a newsletter you know, I go and sit in the stadium. I like to, I like to sit in the football stadium and think like when it's filled up, like that's the number of people we reach every day, 60,000, you know, sometimes 60,000 people. And, and so that's the one analytic that we really look at is the open rate. Another little trick that we do is at the bottom of each newsletter, we'll put like, I'm listening to this song today, or I'm watching this movie this weekend. And you wouldn't believe the amount of feedback we get on that stuff. It's like very personal stuff. I'll say something like, oh, you know, my son is sick this weekend and I'm trying to figure out how we're going to navigate that. And literally parents will write in and say like, hey, have you tried this? Like, and so that's, it's not a trick, but it's, it's, it's fun to know that people are reading all the way to the bottom of the newsletter and get to that. And we get tons of feedback on that part of the newsletter. So we should start putting those on media pitches then we should. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like an Easter egg, you know, and like Taylor Swift does these little Easter eggs or like Jeep has Easter eggs all over their cars. <laughs> you're, you're dropping little Easter eggs. I want to know if you're really, Is that the first really time you've been it. compared to t- Taylor Swift. It is. Just- <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> So are you, I mean, you guys must see because the dwindling and disappearance of local newspapers, are you guys trying to fill like an underserved community when you're trying to get into certain regions and like communities? And I mean, is that, is that one of the goals? Because, you know, I, I worry as a former journalist, you know, I used to work in those small towns and my first job was a small town beat reporter. I'd go to the police station and, you know, go through all the things and try to find what's going on. You know, if that's like important stuff and these small town newspapers are dying and it's, it's, it's a concern. Are you guys like helping to fill that gap or? You know, I think that's the, the overarching goal right now. We're trying to build a business model in the cities that we have that works. We have 
the business model in Charlotte works. Like the the Axios Charlotte makes a lot of money for the number of people that we have on staff, and we're trying to replicate that in the other markets. But the criticism, and and it's valid, is that Charlotte is actually not an underserved market compared to like Mount Olive, North Carolina, or places like that, small towns. So people do criticize us and say like, well, you're already, you're going to these bigger cities or these medium-sized cities and you're, you're going in there and starting newsletters. And we say, yeah, but like the goal is to grow, to keep growing. We've already added like in, in a year and a half, we've gone from zero cities to 21 cities. Hopefully next year, you know, another year and a half we'll be at 42 cities. And then then let's start branching out into the smaller towns and stuff like that. Once we've proven that we can make money and that we don't have to lay people off and all the stuff that happens throughout the newspaper industry these days, like our goal is to never lay a person off. And so we're trying to build a, bo- a model that's sustainable. So when we go, you know, and, and no, in Charlotte, we're not trying to replace the newsletter. I always tell people we're trying to fit in and be be a part of an ecosystem we just started a partnership with wbtv the local tv station here because we in our newsletter we don't have in our newsroom we don't have enough bodies to go cover things like crime and all that stuff but we want to have it for readers to you know and then and the tv station that's bread and butter what they do like they do crime and weather and stuff like that and so we can you know, we can, we can take their, we, with our partnership, we can share our, their stories with our readers and we can share our stories with their viewers. So, you know, we're trying to be friendly in all the markets that we go to. Of course, that's not always, you know, every journalist is competitive. So we have some, some snippy people in some of the markets who are like, oh, we beat you on this story. We're like, yeah, you have a 30, 300 person newsroom. We've got two people there. That's, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to beat you tomorrow, but you know, stuff like that. We're trying to, we're I, in some ways we kind of see us as ourselves as like concierges of the news. Like we're trying to make sure, you know, if it, it, it's not offensive to me, if another outlet has a really good story, like I want to tell our readers about it. Like, you know, if the local newspaper has a terrific story, we we share it in our newsletter. We're like, here, go to this web page. Like, it's awesome. Like, because we are trying to be citizens of Charlotte, not necessarily trying to be competitive journalists. So that's that's sort of our approach is to be a part of the media ecosystem in each place we move. But I would love to, you know, I'm, I'm a North Carolina person now. I've been down here for 25 years. I would love to see it expand and try to figure out how to bring coverage to all the undercover places in North Carolina, for instance, and all these places. So, yeah. So you gave up your love of crab cakes? I did. <laughs> wow. I did. They're not the same. They are not the same, not even close. <laughs> and Before we get too far on that, I want to go back to something you said there way earlier about that you wanted to go to get to go to these games for free. So when was yeah. it like the first time you went to a game for free covering <laughs> it? What was that like? Well, I mean, was it, was it that Camden? Or were, like, no, Camden no. York's even around then? Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it was. Yeah, it's 30 years. Yeah, so you've been doing this 20. But I mean, did you ever do a game in Camden or, or, or someplace where you're like, this is what I was dreaming of? Yeah, I, well, the first time I, you know, covered a sporting event for free, it was for the local High Point newspaper. And it was a high school football game. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily the Orioles or anything like that. 
I spent a lot of night, a lot of Friday nights working high school football for a long time to, to get started. But I do remember, you know, I did get to cover the Washington football team. And when I worked in Virginia, and that was just, I was 22, I think. And just being in the, the press box with like the Michael Wilbons and the Tony Kornizers and those people was, was remarkable for me. I mean, my writing hero was always Shirley Povich, who was a longtime columnist at the Washington Post, who's passed away. Shirley Povich's father. Yeah. yeah. So he's an icon. Yeah. Shirley yeah. Povich. Yeah. Just an amazing writer. And so to be up there in the press box with them was really cool. Did they um, know your name? Did they say your name? Did you get all? <laughs> no, no, I never really got into the, like, I want, yeah, I, 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 it was probably a flaw of mine. I was never very good at marketing myself to people <laughs> like that, I guess. I would watch them like that was what I would do. I would just sort of watch how they did their jobs and, and try to pick up little tips and tricks along the way. I grew up listening to George Michael. Yeah. Um, when he sports did machine. radio. Yeah, oh. before he did sports <laughs> when he did radio in Philadelphia. And then he went off to New York and he did anyway. And then he was at, at Channel 4 and I was working at Channel 4 and I had a they they I was doing news, but they had me cover some sports story. And and I'm walking down the hall and George Michael starts yelling my name. Mark, Mark, thanks for doing that. And I was like, oh my God, George Michael knows my name. <laughs> Holy cow. I was, it was like, that was it. I was good for the day. Yeah. He, good he for was, the day or good for the year? Good for the year. <laughs> George was Michael my, was cool. He was my window into sports as a kid. I mean, that was what we watched. Channel 4. That's crazy. <laughs> so you wrote a book called The Vote Collectors about election fraud. Mm-hmm. What do we learn from that? Tell us first. Tell right. us about that, and then how close to what is going on today? <laughs> Wait, was it before well, it was, election fraud became cool, or whatever it is now? I'm sorry, not cool. That's the wrong thing. <laughs> before it became mainstream, I don't even know. It's not mainstream, but whatever. Yeah, a lot. yeah, it, a lot. It was before it was fanned by the president of the United States, I guess you could say. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that was that was. <laughs> you're the writer, so <laughs> you're saying it better than me. <laughs> no, it was before that. In a small county in North Carolina, well, in, in 2018, we had a congressional race in North Carolina, the ninth congressional district, that ended in a near tie. 900 votes separated two candidates after you know 30 some thousand votes cast, and. The Board of Elections decided not to certify the race after a month after the election day. And the reason was that there were shenanigans, they said, going on in this county called Bladen County, which is an outlying county in North Carolina that also is in a news desert like we've talked about. And for the first time, it shined a light on what had been really small town back and forth between neighbors practices of collecting absentee ballots and possibly absentee or absentee ballot applications and possibly absentee ballots, which is what the illegal part would be. And so, you know, I went out there to cover the story. I was a freelance writer at the time. So I wrote a a feature for Politico. I was working for Politico and I wrote a feature about it and, and really focused on the place, like what made this a place where this happened. And of course the answers were all, pretty plain. They're not 
It's not complicated. You have a recipe of, of a lot of poverty, not a lot of jobs. You have hurricanes that come through and tear this, this area apart all the time. So you have a lot of desperation. So when you have desperation, these politicians come in and say, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks today if you go run around taking ballots and stuff like that. So a hundred bucks to them is a lot of money. And what I saw through, <clears throat> while, while a lot of folks were breaking a lot of news was just how sad the story was that, that, that politicians who are so rich could take advantage of something like this. So I wrote that story. And then I had a, a friend who worked at WBTV who was breaking a lot of news. And he also had built a relationship with the person at the center of the case, a guy named McCray Dallas, who was the political operative who became sort of worldwide, known worldwide as a Republican political operative who was stealing votes, supposedly. And Nick had created, you know, had, had cultivated him as a source. And soon this guy wasn't talking to anybody else, but he was talking to, to my friend Nick, who worked at the TV station. And I thought access to, like, in one night, Nick and I went out and got drinks. And I just, he said, you know, I have exclusive access to this guy and I don't know how to write a book. And I was like, I have a literary agent and I want to write a book. So I'm going to go, hey, let's do this. And so we had, we did 40 hours of interviews with this person that nobody else has ever interviewed. And, and now that he's passed away, nobody else will ever interview. And we have it all on tape. And I just thought, you know, that's, that was why that was my first book. Like, it was just that we had the access and it was an important story, I think, in, in, in the country to show that election fraud can happen. It's not to the scale that some politicians want you to believe, but it can. And it's also, but it's also not, it's also not, not happening. Like it does happen, but it's just not, you know, we're not talking about 30,000 votes. We were talking about 900 votes. So well, they've got to start somewhere. Right. Right. Yeah. But and so we we spent a lot of time out there in this place called Bladen County that was just what, what was that? I mean, you're you're dealing with people in a small town, they all know each other, and you're in there looking under the, you know, under the rug there to see what they swept there. And so how was your reception there while you're working on all this? It was I guess it depends on who we were talking to and what day it was. <laughs> the we you know we had we had the interviews with the one the main person. He was our main character, and we knew that from the beginning. So that wasn't hard. Like we had done the hard part to get to secure his like okay on the book. But you know, other folks, if they were his enemies, they you know, they were hesitant to talk to us. Even some of his friends were hesitant to talk to us, but we just wore him down. Essentially, we stayed there and just never, we, we showed them that we cared. And so we just kind of, like I said, broke through a lot of barriers, I think, just by showing up, which is something that they, you know, folks in places like that don't often see. The reason that folks in places like that have this distrust of media and have this distrust of news is because they don't actually know any reporters, honestly. The, the reporters that they know are all in cable news stations. And, you know, that's just not the reality. Like I, and so 
you know, this all boils down to because this goes back to the the point you were making earlier about you know showing up. News stations need to show up in these places. That's yeah, and that, and that goes back to the the need to not have these news deserts, but also to try to go beyond this. I mean, people think the news is like the Sean Hannity, the Lawrence O'Donnell, the Don Lemon, the, and that's really that's. I mean, there is some news in there, but a lot of those are pundits and talking heads and those aren't the report. I mean, most of the reporters, even on the different outlets are, are most of them are doing true reporting. And it's just, I think we need to educate people. Don't you like, do you, I, I think that people just don't understand journalism and the media. And I just feel like the journalism needs some good PR. They need a <laughs> PR agency as a whole, the whole industry. Yeah, Kathy's unveiling our tr the truth. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, yeah. maybe they could hire us, uh, the whole entire industry. But no, it's just, it's it's sad. It, I mean, as of, I think of this as just a former reporter because, you know, Mark and I have both been in local communities and we've been trusted and thanked and, and, you know, and you see real, really reporters, they just want to, you want to make a change. You want to make a difference. You want to uncover a truth. You want to help people. You, you know, that's really the goal, but most people don't get that because they don't really understand how journalists think and work and act. Yeah. One of the phrases that drives me the most nuts is elite media. And yeah. that is, is crazy because what they, you know, what folks really mean is, is somebody like a Sean Hannity who makes $25 million a year, <clears throat> but that's not, uh, you know, that's not me. That's not any of the reporters I know. We're all, you know, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch today, just like anybody else, you know, like that's, that's, it's just a different, I wish we could educate them, but I think half of educating them is just meeting them and showing up and showing yeah, I mean, it's none of us, no, nobody gets into the news industry to get rich, but the few people that do make it look bad for all of us, I feel like. So. Hey, my first job, I made three twenty-five an hour. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Right? It is. I, I really like what you're doing with Axios because, I mean, there, there's thought to it. It isn't just what's, there's, you know, you talk about the analytics and the open rate and, do you also look at how long people stayed on the articles? I, I know you said you, you checked this, you, you put the Easter egg at the end and see if they're paying attention. Do you follow up like, Hey, you, I saw you didn't open this. No. Uh, no, but we do make a point of trying to respond to all the readers. Like we try to tell them that we're, you know, we're just your neighbors. And if we made a mistake today, we'll try to make it right tomorrow. Th things like that really try to personalize it. I mean, that's, that's what we do on a daily basis is, and people are shocked sometimes. You will we'll sometimes get the meanest emails about politics and stuff like that. And I'll write people back and say, hey, you know, you know, I, I hear where you're coming from, but here's what we were doing. And then sometimes, seriously, I had one guy invite me out to play golf with him afterward. Like it was just just a simple response was 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 all he needed. No, I did not. No, I did not. I did not have a, that was that didn't happen. But I mean it was it it's just the it's just letting people know that we're not bots i mean we're really trying to do that to human beings making stories and trying to 
trying to do it in a truthful way as tr- you know, as close to the, the the truth as we can like trying to cut through all the bulls the the bull and just you know and sometimes we make mistakes we're not perfect when i was in magazines we were perfect i think most of the time <laughs> because we had a long time to work on things but on the daily news cycle we're not going to be perfect we're going to make mistakes and we just try to do better tomorrow so all right one more question and then we'll let you go social media how how does that impact what you're doing it is <laughs> it's a great tool if you know how to use it and it can also drag you down if you let it but axios charlotte has an instagram following that is like 280,000 people and a lot of people get their news from our instagram feed so we're trying to figure out ways now because we post a lot of food on there and we turned to, you know, for, for, for a long time, it was a lifestyle account, but now we've realized that if we post news on there, people will respond to it. So when, you know, when the County updates its mask mandate or some like news like that, we'll post it on there just to let people know. And the comments and many ways turn into like a town square where people are debating whether this should have been done and things like that. So used effectively, social media can be a really good friend of yours. It's just, yeah, it's like anything else. You have to kind of, you have to realize that the negative things that you hear don't necessarily represent the largest percentage of, of your audience. And because people don't email nice things like that it's it's like easier to not email a friendly email than it is to email a a mean email or write a mean comment or something like that like it's whatever for whatever reason the internet has rewarded people for writing negative comments and but those aren't the we've 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 just realized that those aren't the majority of our readers and we know that because we have in-person events where people come up and just tell us how much they love us and hug us and stuff like that like it's not so you know i i I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but trying, but I use it to try to just, just, I mean, and, and it actually show up, we try to meet people where they are. So we, uh, on Instagram, for instance, we will put, we will try to summarize our entire story. If it's a news story in that caption, rather than tell people, Hey, link in bio or something like that, because reality is like, 3% of people actually click the link in the bio. So try to meet people where they are. Distill, I have distilled 3,000 word stories down into to 2,200 characters or something like that because that's where people are getting it. And so we just, and every, I think a lot of times so folks don't realize like so, so in terms of social media that every, like not every platform is the same. A lot of people will try to just copy and paste a tweet into Instagram or Facebook and stuff like that. Well, no, you have different audiences in each place. So we, we try to meet people where they are and make an Instagram post an Instagram post. Like we call that one of our media outlets. That is part of our larger media outlet so that we don't, we just, you know, a lot of times it's an afterthought and it doesn't have to be. Better them get the Instagram post from you than, or the Facebook meme from Joe Schmo down the road, who's like passing, you know, or spreading misinformation. (laughs) At least you're giving them valuable and accurate information via social media, which is part of the problem with people getting a lot of their media from social media, but not getting it from news organizations. Yeah. 
crazy uncle tom doesn't need to be your new source <laughs> like please no. <laughs> yeah uh, just avoid them at thanksgiving you don't have to watch <laughs> so the book's available where Oh, it's, well, it's on UNC Press's website. That was our publisher. And it's also on Amazon and all, and it's in bookstores. It's all over the place. BarnesandNoble.com, if that's your thing, like it's, it's anywhere you want. The Vote Collectors, look for it. And Axios, Charlotte and Axios, a bunch of Axioses. Yeah, yeah. Which, subscribe which, to them in your hometown. If it comes to your hometown, subscribe to it. That's our... Yeah, be smarter. And they're going to tell you the stories, the way easy that you can easily Bullet point. Gra grasp them and remember them. You'll be smarter when you go if, to the water if I cooler, had dollar, talk to your friends. If I had a dollar for every time we told, you know, our the people we work with to put in bullet points, I'd be <laughs> one of those rich TV guys. <laughs> bullet points. And, but I love the oh, idea. Oh, and also the book, Smart Brevity. I actually was, it was on my list to do, to download that book. <laughs> so it's, I, need uh, to, I need to talk in sound bites. Sometimes I talk too long. <laughs> Michael Graff. Just in thank general. You. Thank and you really, very much. We really appreciate you joining us and all, all the insights. A proud alum of High Point University. That's right. Oh, one more point on the, the book. If you buy Smart Brevity, all the proceeds go to our fellowship program. So like all of the money from it goes into to hiring more journalists at Axios. So oh. that's that's, oh, I love that. Oh, we yeah. now we really have to. So it's a write-off. It's a write-off. Now we all have to buy hard, hard copies because they cost more. So they're for a good cause. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. It really has been. Thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate it. All right. Wow. Well, I think. That was a great interview. I think it was, in, it's very interesting how his, his, the way he looks at things, um, you know, it's, it's from 30,000 feet. It's from close up. I, you know, it's very localized. He just has a great attitude towards bringing people great angles on the news. Which all journalists should be doing. Well, yeah. Which we, all journalists <laughs> do, right? <laughs> Well, we loved having Michael as a guest and he shared some terrific stories and advice about being a journalist. That's it for today's podcast. After Deadline, the media podcast is a production of On The Mark Media. If you enjoyed it and want to hear more of our interviews with incredible journalists across the country, be sure to follow us on social media at On The Mark Media and subscribe to After Deadline, the media podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Until next time, we'll catch up with you after deadline.